The Bob Murphy Show, episode 131. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show well if the prior episode on modern monetary theory with Rowan Gray was the broccoli, as I described it. This one's more of a pizza. It might even be borderline uh, dessert because it's going to be a very fun discussion. Uh, the guest is Brett Vinat. He is the host of the School Sucks Project. He also had a career in education. He has been the vice president of a tutoring and educational consulting company in New Hampshire uh, I'm just reading from his bio here. He began working as a counselor and outdoor educator at a boarding school in Vermont in 2000. He then taught at a private day school in Manchester, Vermont from 2004 to 2006. But what he's known for, again, is the School Sucks Project, which uh, it's a podcast, a YouTube channel, an online community dedicated to redefining education. We talk a little bit about Brett's background first, uh, including a certain other podcast that he was affiliated with that some of you may know. And then we uh, go into all the projects he's working on. It's a real fun discussion. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brett Vinat. Well, Brett, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Bob, it's great to be here. So Brett, I think a lot of my listeners know who you are. And so what I typically do with a guest like that is give you a chance to first just explain, you know, how did you get into this stuff? And, you know, whatever, what's, what's the uh, little bit about your background story of your, your origin story? Yeah, absolutely. Well, my project is, uh, you know, School Sucks. Uh, it's a podcast, a YouTube channel. It's an online community. And I started doing that all the way back in 2009. And I think it was the outgrowth of just a lot of frustration I had had working in private educational services my education career ran pretty much through the entire decade leading up to me starting the podcast and it, it taking off in maybe like, you know, 2010. So uh, I had been a special ed teacher. I had been a private school history teacher. I had run a business doing SAT and college consulting. And at every stop, I... I don't, you know, sometimes, Bob, I say I was just lazy and I was looking for a way out. Mm -hmm. Like, boy, this work kind of sucks and it doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like I'm helping people. And those are just feelings. So I need to find the reason why this is not the thing for me to do. And um, fortunately, the system is incredibly flawed and corrupt. So it was always easy to find, you know, a pretty tangible, uh, logical reason to move on uh, to, to the next step of my career. And um, when I started the show... I, you know, well, can, was I, can also, I stop you yeah, for sure. a second? Yeah, let me just, because, uh, so one thing before I forget, I want to establish, I didn't realize it because Tom and I had you as a guest speaker on the Contra Cruise and, mm. uh, and you did a great job, by the way, very interesting. And I didn't realize that the, the title school sucks is like, it had like a double meaning. So of course, like the obvious one that sounds like, you know, every, any sixth group, yeah, school sucks, but also it was like, that it like sucks the life out of you or something. 
Yeah, well, that it was a frequent quote that I heard from students that I certainly said to myself during my 12 years uh, in school. And, you know, the more I thought about that statement, obviously, yeah, it had some power as far as like marketing and attraction. And it was provocative. I'm I, there's been a couple times along the way where it's like, oh, I could have done better than school sucks. But now we're stuck with it. Um, yeah, on the one hand, my observation at the time back, uh, you know, 10, 11 years ago is I had some young nieces and nephews. They were like really curious. They were really energetic. They had a lot of confidence. They asked why they wanted to show you all of the things they could do, like a very mediocre magic trick or uh, you know, a passable three or four year old joke that they had learned. And, um, you know, they just had all of this energy, that natural teacher that we, I think we all have inside that is mostly like around curiosity was very alive in them. And at the same time, through my work, I was tutoring and consulting AP level varsity athletes, kids who, you know, were potentially Ivy League bound and they couldn't even look me in the eye. You know, they mumbled when they talked. They had no passion. They had no energy. Uh, they had no excitement about learning. And I think the reflection that I did was like, all right, well, what's in between these two phases of life, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and it's it's 12 years of school. And that kind of sucks these natural gifts out of too many people, at least from my observation. I'm not saying anybody couldn't get them back. In fact, my project was about de-schooling and rejuvenating that or reviving that natural mm -hmm. teacher. And of course, the the other meaning of school sucks is that it's a, a tremendous opportunity cost, right? Because everybody has to pay for school through property tax. I think a lot of, uh, you know, stakeholders in communities resign themselves to this acceptance of, okay, well, this is the way it works. So it's actually eliminating the possibility of better options emerging because so much money, mm -hmm. you know, is crowding out uh, potential alternatives. At least that was the case uh, 11 years ago when I named the show that. Right. I think, you know, the times are changing now for mm -hmm. sure. Can I ask you also, because I've heard you talk about this before, then you mentioned how there was a phase where you were doing a lot of private tutoring for like SATs and was it GREs also? Uh, I, I don't think I ever did the GRE, okay, no. So, but I say to you, all right. So I'm curious on that. Do you remember, was it, did you feel like, oh, I'm explaining the actual material, so I'm really just teaching kids? To, or was it more like, oh, there's a trick for these kind of questions? You know what I mean? Like you're teaching to the test. Did you feel like this is a huge waste of time? I was teaching kids how to get a good SAT score. Or were you actually teaching the material that they'd gone through for years and nobody ever really showed them how algebra worked and you had to do it in two hours? I actually thought, so glad you asked that. This is one of my favorite subjects. I actually thought that studying to do well on the SAT was one of the greatest educational opportunities that a lot of 21st century public school students get, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you think the, the SAT is not really a test of things that you learned in school beyond some very, very basic things. It is much more of a critical thinking test, right? So through studying... Uh, for the SAT, people had opportunities to learn things that school had never taught, like how to make a persuasive argument in, uh, you know, on a very, very efficient scale, like five or 600 words, and what the elements of a persuasive argument are, how to use Latin and Greek roots in the English language to, um, you know, expand your practical vocabulary by maybe thousands of words. 
And um, the kinds of math questions that were on the SAT were always the questions when we were given our uh, math homework assignments all through high school, like do numbers one through 31 odd and stop right before you get to that little section called critical thinking questions. (laughs) Uh, That's what most of at least the harder math questions are about on the SAT. So I would just delight when I was doing these classes, I would just delight in the opportunity to, to teach these things and really... The only other place I saw this was when I was teaching history and not doing a great job because back then, you know, I just graduated from college and I was a nut uh, as far as like the things that I was putting into these kids' heads. I was very, very oriented towards the left. I had lots of problems and I owe all those kids an apology. But their their faces would light up, you know. That was something that that I really enjoyed. We're like, that kid, is that true? And And to think that you could do that with math, if somebody told me when I was like 16 years old and I was struggling through at whatever math I was in, Algebra 2 or Trig or whatever, that someday I would have the ability to light up kids' faces by revealing things about math. Like, what is the distance formula and how does it mm-hmm. work and why was this never explained and what is pi? Why were you never told? Right. I would not have believed them. I, I would have just said, this is the, the most boring thing ever. I can't wait for it to be over. But that really excited me. And one thing that I noticed is the problem of the way school taught a lot of these things, which was drill and kill, like rote memorization. And I remember one kid getting particularly angry at me in one of these classes. I was teaching it at a, at a high school in New Hampshire, and he had this outburst. He goes, no one ever gave me a formula for how to do this, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, there is no formula for how to do this. You have to think about it, you know? It's mm-hmm. it's a combination of maybe three or four things that you learn. So so the SAT math um, was a kind of synthesis of knowledge that you had, but you had to figure out how to put that puzzle together in some cases. So I tried to be efficient. We, uh, we had one course that was just like, here's like the quick and dirty best tips for um, working through a standardized test like this. And then we had a 10 hour course where we went into more detail about, uh, you know, you know, more practice problems and things like that. But I always felt really energetic and, um, like I was accomplishing something teaching that. Eventually it just kind of became the same thing over and over and over and over again. Like I was just saying that it was like reading a script and it got a little boring. So, uh, I moved on eventually, mm-hmm. but. Okay, because, I mean, that's one of the knocks against the government oversight of education, you know, like, was it the W. Bush administration or something that, like, had to reform and they imposed a lot of testing to make sure to keep schools accountable. And you understood why they would do that, because if there's some school somewhere and half the kids graduating can't even read, that's crazy. Mm. But then the teachers would complain and say, oh, now it's turned into all we're doing is teaching to the test because we don't want to lose our funding or we don't want the state to take us over and blah, blah, blah. But yet, right. some of those things, like, I mean, again, and I didn't, I don't know what those standardized tests were, but I was, in some cases, I was wondering, well, you know, maybe that's good for the kids if they're being, you know, if, you're, if the outsider is forcing you to teach stuff that's kind of basic. Yeah, so a lot of the tests that happen, like, on the state level, like, various states have their own, you know, versions of these, like, New York has the Regents, Massachusetts has the MCAT. those were just MCATs, those were a couple that I was mm-hmm. involved in at some point, Um they are basically tests of the performance of the school where, where the students are basically enslaved as metrics for how the school is performing mm-hmm. to communicate up to like the state departments of education. Right. I always told kids when I tutored them, those tests don't matter. Don't stress about them. Uh, the SAT is distinct 
from that in just like the the opportunities that I thought it provided, you know, like having better persuasive skills, having better language skills and having better logical reasoning skills on your way into college, which you're on your way into if you're taking the SAT. Mm. So I saw that as a, an entirely different kind of standardized test. Okay. Yeah. Also, I meant to bring this up before you talk more about the school sucks thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that important period of your life where you were part of the Wheels Off Liberty podcast? Yeah. Oh, Bob, thanks for bringing that up too. <laughs> uh, I, I miss that. I, uh, I, I found a picture of uh, Jamie Crane, who was a co-host mm-hmm. uh, of Wheels Off Liberty. I, I guess we should explain what it is. It was these two guys from Oklahoma, two of the most delightful men you'll ever meet, uh, Mike and Jamie. And there, the premise for the show was, if these two idiots can understand the philosophy of liberty, you can too, right? Mm-hmm. And somehow... Me, this New Englander, I became involved as one of the co-hosts, I think a fill-in at at one point, and then became a permanent part of the show while it lasted. And uh, man, we couldn't do that show today. (laughs) We we did a reunion show in 2017, and um, the the whole setup was we had to re-educate one of the co-hosts who had gone missing, which is how we explained the show's disappearance on the new way of society, right? Mm-hmm. We've had a cultural revolution since you've been gone. And, uh, you know, now this is the way things have to be. You can't say anything that you used to say, but So no, no more that. blackface think, for you guys? No. <laughs> no, but we need more, we need more comedy, I think, mm-hmm. in, this, in this whole scene. There's not enough I, of it. There's some of it, but I don't want to put you on the it. spot. Maybe you haven't done it in a while, but can, can you still do your Jamie Crane impression for the few listeners who know who he is? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's 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 hard to start an impression. It's hard to uh, perform on command. But uh, let's see, Oklahoma, happy, lively. Oh, hey, <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> that's not right. Jamie will be insulted if he hears that. Um, but uh, what else did he say? Um, you're listening to Wheels Off Liberty. I feel. Uh, I feel that's, like I'm that's making pretty fun good of right him. there. But I know you when okay. you're when you're relaxed. I know it's you're like dead on what you, you do. Like it, like it's freaky. Like the one guy who does John Madden and sounds just like him. Like that's you, with Jamie <laughs> Crane. <laughs> right. Well, uh, you know, I I thought about like reaching out to him. A uh, picture came up uh, of us on Facebook. It was probably from like eight years ago, and it was me and him and Stefan Molyneux and Adam Kokesh. And I just sent it to him and said, you remember when we were two of the four most famous guys in the, in the Liberty movement <laughs> in, this, in this picture here? And uh, yeah, I was like, oh, gosh, I wish we could still do something like that together. I don't know. Maybe we've grown up too much. Well, so in, in there, just in terms of your, like, you, you personally, like, like, what do you call yourself, right? Are, are you a libertarian, an anarcho-capitalist? I don't know exactly. Why, how do you define yourself? Or you don't care about I, that kind of stuff? You, that's yeah. That's a great question. I think it depends on who I'm talking to because I think in if the, the FBI the very... is questioning you and showed you a <laughs> picture of Jamie Crane and saying, "Do you know this man?" <laughs> <laughs> well, in the in the very polarized like echo chamber uh, world that we live in, I think that who who your audience is is really important because by giving yourself a label, you're effectively giving somebody else the handles they need to just pick you up and throw you away. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, libertarian, I know what that is. That's Mm -hmm. uh, like Glenn Beck, right? Right. (laughs) So so libertarian, if if I was talking to someone who was fairly like-minded or even if they expressed 
you know, a fair amount of curiosity. I don't know if I would say I'm a libertarian. I would say I'm pretty libertarian on yeah, that issue. Now, yeah, of course, the truth it's is it's all issues. not but, as a noun. Yeah. 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 Or, or you know, uh, I might even, I don't know. It depends on what the stakes are in the conversation. There are times where I would not say it. I would just uh, play a kind of uh, gadfly mm-hmm. role. Uh, I've tried that and also gotten called out on that. Mm-hmm. Like somebody said, I know what you're trying to do. These aren't real questions. You already have answers to these questions you're trying to ask. <laughs> so uh, that can backfire sometimes. But I, I am just cautious about about how I use it. But for obviously for your audience, yeah, I would say I'm libertarian. Okay, all right. And then how did you c- come to those views? Like, was it participating in the show or or like Wheels Off Liberty meaning or was it be earlier just you read stuff? Oh, yeah, it was way, it was probably around uh, 2006. And I, you know, I, I already had a fair amount of experience in education. I had worked in a boarding school and I had come from, you know, like all, most people who wander out of a college into the real world, pretty, like I said, oriented towards the left, maybe like democratic socialist, uh, if I had to put a label on it. I felt a duty to, uh, you know, give back to society or have a responsible a uh, kind of noble career working in education. So right out of school, I I started working at this this boarding school in the town where I went to school. It was for, you know, some of the, it was like the last stop before juvenile jail or the first stop out of juvenile jail. And, um, you know, I saw the way that kids were treated in state custody. And I think a lot of my like liberal progressive dreams evaporated right mm-hmm. there just by seeing the the reality of what, the state can do for the youth of society. So a lot of that had to do with basically just warehousing kids without giving them the clinical resources that they really needed for, um, you know, a lot of the the emotional problems that they had. Um, the most wicked practice, I would say, was the drugging of kids, you mm-hmm. know, where you, uh, I, I was a med certified person. Part of my job was outdoor education. So if I took kids on a, like an all day trip or an overnight trip, I would have a tackle box, a fishing tackle box filled with drugs that I would dispense to the kids at certain times of day, like morning, noon, uh, p.m., and bedtime meds. There was one boy I gave 35 pills a day, you know, for, for no noticeable change in his behavior. And you also have this real swallow the spider to catch the fly kind of problem right. with with those pharmaceutical drugs where a kid is given a drug to help him focus, but it makes him anxious. So another drug is prescribed to help him chill out, but that drug makes him too lethargic and a third drug and a fourth drug. And, and I saw that happen. So I think that was a wake up for me where I became very uncomfortable with what I was doing, but I still was searching for the language I needed to explain this mm-hmm. problem. And, um, you know, I, I became like uh, very conspiratorial through like, you know, the, you have the emergence of like Google video. This was before YouTube and uh, uh, podcasts open up. So I get into a lot of like alternative theories of things. And there's some kind of psychic payoff for that where it's like, I know something you don't know. Mm-hmm. And then, <laughs> and and certainly like, you know, Graduating from college and being progressive satisfies that, you know, intellectual and moral superiority, like I'm better than other people because, I mean, that's such a huge problem today anyways. People have their identity so wrapped up in their beliefs. That's why they melt down when their beliefs are questioned. But, you know, just um, on a basic level, 
there's a satisfaction in feeling like you're on to something that the average person isn't. So enter libertarianism. This is like the mm -hmm. best discovery ever right. for a person who, so, so I, I'm saying that like, I didn't go into it for the best of intention. I, uh, intentions, excuse me. I was like, this is the best set of like intellectual and moral shaming tools ever created. Mm -hmm. And I will embrace it fully. So I was fairly reckless at first. I burned a lot of bridges. You know, I wish that the the understanding of the philosophy of liberty came packaged with better communication skills, which is one of the projects we've taken on um, at School Sucks, mm -hmm. is how to basically, you've got a lot of heavy information to move. Right. I mean, you know this through what you do for sure. How do you build like the bridges you know, the connections to people that are necessary that can support the weight of that information moving across. Because you're talking about rocking people's whole world, mm -hmm. right? To basically knocking out the foundation of everything they believe or every belief that gives them comfort if they're more, you know, oriented towards the political mainstream. So there's a cautious approach that's required that I really didn't have. But I would say it was my, my first exposure was Free Talk Live, from there, I found uh, Wes Bertrand, who is a, a really great thinker that not enough people uh, know about. He had a podcast called Complete Liberty. And uh, from there, he told me about Free Domain Radio. So that was like the one, two, three. And I just consumed, I mean, I was, I was commuting a lot for work. I think I was driving like 600 miles a week. So I had all the time in the world to listen to podcasts, either driving or riding trains around Boston. So um, I consumed a lot of that. And then it moved on to like reading Rothbard, For New Liberty, Ethics of Liberty. Uh, that, was, that was really the jumping off point for me. Okay, great. So do you want to, so that, that was a you know, good background. And now I sort of interrupted you. You're talking about the School Sucks Project. So what, it, it's not merely a podcast. It's also, what is it? Is it an empire? What is it? Or a project? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we're primarily what we do is a podcast. And we also have a community where uh, people support the show and they get access to additional kind of like spin-off content. So we do like a film analysis show where we try to uh, incorporate, you know, like the language and the logic of cinema. And those lessons are basically transportable into other pursuits. We do a, a history show called In Pursuit of Utopia, where we look at various attempts at building the perfect society mm -hmm. and how those attempts crashed and burned our most recent show or how they're still going strong and nobody knows about them. Like our most recent show was on Fabian socialism. Okay. Right. So the, the Fabian mm -hmm. society movement in the late 1800s in Britain that certainly uh, spread to the United States. Can I tell you a, like the, a quick story? Yeah. Please. So please. I don't remember how it was, but recently I made an offhand comment to my wife about how, you know, this reminds me of, you know, the French Revolution or something, and they're going to start guillotining their former allies or, you know, as the mm -hmm. left's eating its own. So we ended up watching a movie on the French Revolution that, you know, was well done. And it was French, you know, like, I don't just mean the, the, the dialogue and stuff, but like it was made by a friend. And it's going through and they're showing the arguments, you know, for and against the king or whatever, and it culminates up to with guillotine the king and then that's the end of the movie and I realized the whole time I was waiting for them to show the terror and everything and I realized oh wait this is a French filmmaker he's for the French revolution like his point wasn't whoa there's, there's some warnings here let's not repeat these mistakes it was isn't this awesome <laughs> we had a, a yeah. violent revolution and now we have freedom and, and equality yay so anyway was it, this it, um that early it's like early 80s Gerard Depardieu is it that movie I don't think so but I'm not sure do you remember what it was called no, 
I could okay. probably go find it, but it, it was on Netflix, I think. But pure curiosity. Yeah. I was just wondering. Uh, but my yeah, point I, just being, it's funny how like the lessons of history differ depending on who the person chronicling it is. But yeah. So that I think was a really important part of the exercise mm-hmm. was to not force it and to really focus on the enjoyment of telling these these stories without being super judgmental. You know, like the Fabians are a hard group, like George Bernard Shaw, that's a hard group to humanize, mm-hmm. but that's a fun exercise to go through to really try to put yourself in their shoes and and to, you know, understand their view of the world and how it led to those actions that that are seem so reprehensible looking back at them today. Uh, you know, it's kind of like Jordan Peterson's confrontation of a few years ago where he said to his students and then to YouTube and maybe to Joe Rogan's entire audience, if you lived during World War II and you were in Germany, what do you think you would be? Right. Do you think you'd really be resisting the Nazis or would you be a Nazi? Right. You know, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I think that it was a really valuable exploration to have the have the fun and the challenge of trying to understand these people, but also it's not going to be hard, especially in the chaos of today's world, to find connections, mm-hmm. uh, especially like in the the, the French Revolution. Uh, that was the, um, you mentioned to me before we started, you saw uh, the Ideological Purity Test preview show, which mm-hmm. is a preview of subscriber-only content. And I just pulled a clip, like a 30-minute clip out of this this show we did back in November, where we're talking about how as the revolution escalates, this culture of suspicion builds and and people, especially people who are looking to personally profit, uh, usually in the form of political power, they're subjected to these more rigorous ideological purity tests. And I think we're very much seeing that. Um, we're seeing a kind of, <laughs> I don't know if this is more like the, the, the French Revolution or the Spanish Inquisition, mm-hmm. what we're in right now around uh, social issues, but there's certainly a lot of overlap and it's satisfying to find those things without trying to force those connections. So we've done mm-hmm. a pretty good job, I think. That wasn't expecting you to bring that one up. Which one? The Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's uh <laughs> Sorry, I had two to, seconds we, too we, slow. I do have an older crowd that might be listening. Um, so, <laughs> there, there's, geez, there's, there's a lot of stuff here. I, I don't know which way I want to take it. The, the Fabian Socialist, why don't you, just for the benefit of the listeners who don't know what that means, can you explain it? And also, do you, do you know, I mean, well, you probably do, but like their emblem or their, I don't know what the term would be, their logo, the, the, the sheep in the wolf's clothing, or the wolf in yeah. the sheep's clothing? Yeah, there's a lot of it. So they had a couple of logos. One was a, a, a tortoise, which moves slow, but when it strikes, it strikes hard. So in the other words, uh, in other words, the Fabian is a reference to a Roman general who was fighting Hannibal and basically waged this very slow war of wear, wearing down the enemy instead of doing, um, you know, these dramatic uh, battles. It became very much more a war of attrition and, and mm. a gradualism. So the Fabia, Fabians adopted that in the 1880s as like, look, these socialist ideas, and just from their perspective, you know, they're looking at a century where their country, the United States, was plagued by things like slavery. They, they tie that to anti-socialist ideas. So I, I really feel like 
a lot of them are operating from the best intentions they have based on you know based on the knowledge they possess at that time so they want this gradual approach which is seen as like if you want to do something slowly and secretly it means you know it's bad what you're doing so then you couple that with like the old clip of George Bernard Shaw saying I don't want to punish anybody but there's an extraordinary number of people I want to kill you mm -hmm. know and he talks about eugenics and this is pre Hitler where it was okay to muse about those right. things it was actually super popular in uh, American progressive academia and, and just time, so. just on that too like I was astonished I think when I was younger, I would have forgiven the Fabian socialists at the time. Say, well, they really didn't know. It was still theoretical. You know, socialism sounds great. I mean, even Hayek, when he was praising Mises, says, oh, well, you know, when I first came out of school as a young man, all the good men were socialists. And then Hayek mm -hmm. is explaining, it wasn't until I read Mises' book on socialism that it like blew up my world and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. you know, that was just the way things were, turn of the century. But yeah, we were, again, we, we were watching a lot of documentaries, you know, when you're, when you're locked down, you watch a lot of stuff. And I didn't realize that, yeah, George Bernard Shaw has quotes praising Stalin. Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, all of them. Yeah. Uh, and I think that he, he's kind of an outlier. So to, to do that, uh, what is that? The, the fallacy of addition where you take a, a select example of somebody who is part of this group and then you apply the properties of that person to the entire mm -hmm. group. I would say that, Despite things like those Shaw quotes and, yes, the wolf emerging from sh uh, sheep's clothing, which is a little bit more – I don't fully understand it, but I think there's a little bit more nuance to it than that. Yeah, it looks really bad. And plus the fact that they're doing something slowly and secretly, meaning that they know it's not good. I think what they understood was that uh, – and this was this was better – uh, it was really borne out by like after we, we you know, we have the, the Russian Revolution and the emergence of Leninism, which is like a more rapid revolution, like French Revolution kind mm -hmm. of style, advancing new ideas that are going to upturn society. They needed the gradual approach for uh, a world that had the kinds of values and traditions uh, that America had. Right. That that wouldn't that sudden change to a dramatically different economic system primarily would not work here. It would be immediately rejected and the opportunity would be lost forever. So, you know, the Fabians moved from Britain where they were very successful. You know, they basically I think they were behind the establishment of the, the Labour Party, which is one of the biggest political parties in Britain today. Mm. And, and you could you could look at certainly the United Kingdom since the end of World War II and say that if there is a Fabian plan in place, they've been incredibly successful. And um, I, I mean, you, you could make a pretty powerful argument that it's worked well in the United States too, right? And, and I think that and one of the things I always talk about is when they rolled out No Child Left, or not No Child Left Behind, Obama, Common Core, like 10 years ago, I said in 10 years, so where we sit right now, People are going to say about this thing that's so controversial right now, that's so resisted right now, that is so, you know, you know, questioned, like, what's really behind this right now? Ten years, people will be saying, how could we live without it, right? Mm -hmm. So that that gradualist approach is so dangerous because the, the tendrils that get kind of woven into everything make things almost mm -hmm. impossible to extract. So you look at the the entire institution of public school, let's say, where people were in the streets with pitchforks in the 1860s, in the 1870s, around this idea that they would turn their children over to the government. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that was probably one of the most is- insaneest things had that had ever been proposed in America at that point. Mm-hmm. But now, only now, <laughs> in the in the wake of this uh, this this COVID crisis, are people questioning it to the extent anywhere near the extent I think they should be. Mm-hmm. And and that's obviously a a process of gradualism, right? Horace Mann comes back from Prussia in the 1840s and the 1850s and goes, they got a pretty good system over there. Uh, they kind of abuse it, but certainly we could use it here for, you know, good uh, in a good American way. And a law gets passed in Massachusetts. It gets practiced there. But it's like, oh, it'll only be for boys 12 to 16. It'll only be three days a week. And just as people are listening to this, just apply this to to the current reformation of school, whatever school is going to look like, the surveillance state of school and the additional crackdowns in school and the additional spending in school around, you know, uh, coronavirus safety this fall. Uh, It's only going to be for this group of people. It's only during this amount of time. And then that law spreads to another state. And then it's like, all right, well, boys and girls, 16 to 12. And then it just... uh, spreads and spreads and grows and grows and grows very slowly by, you know, the the time we're in the middle of the progressive era, uh, a couple decades into the 20th century, f- every I think every state has a compulsory attendance law. And and now here we are 100 years after that and there up until this this current crisis around this this pandemic, there was never any possibility of it being uh, effectively extra- extracted from from our society. So mm-hmm. that, I think, is the danger of the Fabian approach. And it is in every institution, every government department, I would say it is ubiquitous today. Hey, folks, let's take a pause from the discussion to mention why you should contribute to The Bob Murphy Show. I don't want to do ads. I think that would change the flavor of the podcast. And so I rely on support directly provided by you, the listener. And so I'm going to ask you, if you like the show, the content I provide, and you haven't done so already, why don't you uh, give it a whirl? Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks for listening. Okay, so let me, so I do want to come back in a moment, and I've even written a note to myself. It's like a test-taking skill. You know, you write notes <laughs> down so I don't forget to come back to, like, to focus specifically on the school history and, you know, Horace Mann and mm-hmm. Prussian model and all that stuff. But just more generally, to finish that train of thought, I'm curious, because... The reason, again, this is on the top of my mind, is we, I was watching a different documentary where they were making the case that, you know, like, hey, doesn't it seem like no matter what the issue is, there's like 19 different things, like the environmental movement and whatever, abortion and this and that. So the guy, this is coming from a Christian conservative perspective. And all mm-hmm. these different things, you know, no easy divorce laws and da, 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 and all this stuff, you know, the public schools. And even though they seem on the surface to be wildly different things, yet it's always paving the way towards the government taking over every aspect of your life from cradle to grave. And yeah. so he was, you know, that the whole premise of this documentary, and that's what they were bringing up, the Fabian socialists and quotes from like Bertrand Russell that are shocking from the 50s and stuff, saying this isn't a coincidence and this isn't a conspiracy theory. This stuff is all out in the open. Here, we can go read to you. And they're quoting from various people saying, this is our plan to take over society and so the question, like, so the only issue would be, is it, oh no, it really was just a dumb coincidence and the, these explicitly admitted socialists and, and or communists who wrote about the theory of this just got lucky and other people happened to do the things that they recommended, but it wasn't because those other people were trying to further that. You, you get what I'm saying? Like, it's a, it's a neat I, I little theory and I'm just wondering, you know, is that is that reading too much into it? And yeah, just because some guys said, 
said something in 1905 about this is how communism would take over doesn't mean that actually happened. It just kind of the growth of big government is what it was. And uh, yeah, I mean, well, I think it's it's more like the the Rahm Emanuel way of thinking. Never let never let a crisis go to waste. And you know, people have have kind of waited in the wings with these designs on society. Uh, they infiltrate institutions. I know infiltrate is kind of a, a pointed word uh, and maybe makes them sound more diabolical. But these are people who are committed to these projects and they know the places that they have to go. Right. They they go to mm -hmm. state capitals. Uh, you can go to the most conservative states in the country and the capitals are overrun with liberals and progressives. Right. You know, like Oregon is uh, I was out in Oregon a couple of years ago. It's a state of farmers and, you know, leave me aloneers. Mm -hmm. And the, the, you know, that, that entire population is controlled by what goes on in two, two cities, Portland and Salem. Massachusetts, believe it or not, is very similar, where outside of Boston, you go into the western part of that state, and it's, it's like the south. You know, New York right. is upstate. New York is the same thing. So, you know, these people understood where they needed to position themselves to have this kind of influence. Obviously, right from the beginning, it wasn't just political, it was academic. And, you know, today, certainly in the last like 50 to 70 years, that positioning has been in the media mm -hmm. as well. So people who are pushing for these ideas or, or uh, socialism generally have an enormous kind of cultural head start in that uh, outside of politics, and you know this all too well, they have uh, disproportionate control and influence in academia and disproportionate control and influence in, in media. So they are in the places they need to be right. to, to use that Fabian expression, strike hard when the time comes. Well, can I ask you, to, well, I guess you're, you might be answered, but because again, you're right, Rahm Emanuel, never let Christ go to waste. But on the other hand, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine. Um, refresh my memory. It's, okay, it sounds, so she, I know Naomi Klein's yeah, book sounds really so familiar. she relies heavily on, I guess, Milton Friedman used, you know, had a correspondence with Pinochet. And the idea was the public is not at all in favor of your radical laissez faire ideas, Chicago school economists. And so <laughs> right, right. they knew and were telling, you know, dictators on the right the only way you're going to ram this through is wait till there's a crisis. And then while the public is reeling because, you know, the currency crashed or whatever, that's when you implement your free trade, you know, cut off welfare benefits, tie your currency to the dollar, you know, do all the stuff that's crazy and not. So from her perspective, it was, you know, these evil libertarian right wingers who would wait for a crisis and then go ahead and run through. And they're called the shock doctor because Friedman, I'm paraphrasing, but said something like, if you're going to go ahead and do this stuff, do it all right away. If you phase it in, it's going to prolong the agony, like sort of rip the Band-Aid off kind of thing. So she, yeah. she wasn't putting words, and Friedman did say that stuff. And also, like, I would say, like, you know, if, if, if Ron Paul is going to be president, I would say, yeah, do his agenda right away because then there's going to be a bad recession. Unemployment might go to 15%, but then we'll get over it. Whereas if you kind of do it piecemeal, his whole first term would be bad. You know mm -hmm, what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's true, but my, my question to you is, you know, given that in principle that should work both ways, why does it seem like, no, every crisis was always ratcheting it towards a big government? How come when there was, you know, with each crisis, it wasn't people saying, you know, we've been trying bigger government and things keep, get, the crises keep getting worse. Maybe we should go the other way. Why is it every crisis uh, proves how laissez-faire capitalism doesn't work, even though if you asked the week before the crisis, do we have laissez-faire capitalism? They'd say, no, that would be nutty because then there'd be crises. 
Yeah, I, I think, and this is just an observation uh, from, from the last few years, is that a crisis is no time to look back, right? Mm-hmm. Because libertarians are real annoying. They always go, you know, if you had done this, just, yo, just in 1912, if this had happened instead of this, mm-hmm. and people go, you know, sorry, idiot. It's 2008, right? And we're in the middle of the biggest crisis we've ever faced in our lives, and we need to go forward. And so, this can't be some academic exploration of what might have been 95 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's like the crisis is here now. I mean, that's why the crisis is such a perfect time to strike, because I think, especially when you have this kind of, um, uh, you know, mass fear. Obviously, the capacity for reason is is dramatically reduced, and, mm-hmm. and people will always accept these, um, you know, dramatic. I mean, look at what people have have swallowed just in the last like four or five months, right? In this mm-hmm. country, right? Around what is is shaping up to be a pretty a pretty minimal danger for most people, right? Mm-hmm. And and. Uh, how go- uh, government on on the state and federal level seized that that opportunity there there uh, now there are other examples that i think are better as far as looking at the past versus how to go forward but i i think just the simple answer is people don't want to suddenly become uh you know uh, involved in some academic exploration of cause and effect when the crisis is actually upon us so, mm-hmm. so libertarians um, in these conversations are kind of uh, pigeonholed or, or caricatured as the people who have no solutions, right? Mm-hmm. You have no solutions. You're just talking about uh, how it could have been if something different happened way in the past, right? Which kind of excludes us from the conversation, which right. I think is why this, this ratcheting effect uh, mm-hmm. just continues. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Yeah. And also, I, I think you're right that the people who are in the relevant positions, like the media, like in terms of framing the conversation, it's like to not say, geez, look at how the Fed blew up the housing bubble. That's not something people would have gotten from CBS or something as of 2008, right. that they are populated by leftists. And again, so the, the question was just, oh, is that just because, you know, our artsy people tend to be on the left or like, was it a deliberate st- I'm saying there were hand, but you know, Saul Alinsky, take your pick, uh, yeah, his, yeah. his mentor, you know, that going back saying, yeah, right now we don't have the votes, the culture's against us, you know, the people believe in their God or whatever. So let's go ahead and yeah, like take over the schools, da, da, this, da, and it was like a, it was a strategy like this, this. So anyway, the, the, can, can we go back to, because I do want to talk about the virus stuff because I know you got a whole project on that that's interesting. But can we go yeah. back to the Horace Mann and the Prussian model? Just for for those who don't know, it's not the case that from time immemorial it was assumed that oh yeah you you have a kid and then when he reaches five years old or something you hand him over eight hours a day to get tutored by uh, public school teachers. Like wh- wh- where did that come from? That concept. Yeah, and I, I think we already hinted at this a little bit, that this was really the story of the boiled frog as far as the American people mm-hmm. uh, are concerned. This There was a very, it's interesting that we brought up Fabianism, because there, there was a very Fabian approach to this. And, you know, I, I just think the whole school story is this increasing leverage of of scientific managers or people who had these designs on society through, really through, um, you know, three revolutions. And they were all Interestingly, they're all safe uh, space roughly like a half a century apart. So the initial incursion is the the Horace Mann uh, Traveler's Reports, where 
Lots of people in industrial countries, so this included France, England, and the United States, were looking at places in the world that they thought were, I don't know, something worth aspiring to. And one of those places was Central Europe in the middle of the 1800s in this kingdom uh, of Prussia. Actually, this goes back to the the early 1800s. So the Prussian system is very much about uh, industrial and military obedience. And this is something that in the United States, in the middle of the 1800s, you have a coming industrial revolution and you have the end of the slave system. So having an institution that you can use as kind of a forge to not only standardize, oh, you also have a huge immigrant influx Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. starting around that time too. So to set up an institution as a forge where you can get a predictable, standardized and obedient citizenry out of it, it, like this is first introduced to people as a kind of conspiracy theory. If you could... Nothing else would have made sense at that time than than to import a system like this. If the system already existed and had already been like paying dividends for the the aristocracy of Prussia and other places in Central Europe, why not bring it to the United States? Why not bring it to the United Kingdom? Why not bring it to France? So so I would say that was the first and probably the most important revolution um, as far as shifting from what existed before to uh, a collectivist approach. I mean, that was really it. It was family and community-based education to an industrial collectivist schooling, right? Mm-hmm. And 50 or so years later, it was the the progressives who were seeking more of a secular utopia, people like John Dewey, who entered into, the, they, they didn't obliterate the Prussian foundation, right? Because you see how something that teaches obedience, conformity, and, and as a result produces a kind of intellectual apathy. Because, you know, if you're, if you're outsourcing your ability to make decisions or you're surrendering individuality to, um, you know, the, the will of the group or the need of fitting into a group, it's, it's an understandable impulse. But if, if those are the practices that school is teaching, obviously the outcome is going to be a kind of, you know, intellectual, moral, moral, spiritual apathy, right? If you've outsourced all that other stuff. So everybody understands, everybody wants to control the schools, understands its power. So the progressives are just like it is today. We have the best ideas. We're the most responsible, the most moral. We're the, we're the party of science. So a lot of the science they were promoting back then was, would be extremely controversial today, things like eugenics. Mm-hmm. But they were the the responsible scientific managers, and they understood that the the forge could be used for their purposes. So schooling took a more progressive shape in the first half of the 20th century. And then it took a kind of uh, behaviorist metric turn in the in the 1960s and 70s, where principles of Skinner's behaviorism were used to basically start this standardized test revolution, right? And and what is often called outcomes based education, which sounds nice and sounds mm-hmm. responsible. Uh, but what was discovered by people who researched this in the in the 80s and 90s was outcomes-based education was very much about producing certain attitudinal outcomes in students. So using behaviorism plus uh, you know, the science, th- th- these measurement sciences to form the attitudes, to better form the attitudes. And you think this is an outgrowth of, of the 1960s where there's all kinds of cultural revolution and iconoclasm happening and 
you know, that's not that's not the best thing. That's very unpredictable. So I think this is kind of a response to that. And through outcomes-based education, we get things like Goals 2000 under Bill Clinton, No Child Left Behind under George Bush, and uh, Common Core under Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's the story in the nutshell. But that first revolution, that first incursion of the Prussian schooling is such a dramatic shift Taking, taking the responsibility of education away from families and communities and transferring it to the state. Yeah, so folks, I'll link to, Brett, I was mentioned before the show, I, I looked at your, you've got this YouTube video that's got like 198,000 views right now called The American Way and it links to Nazi Germany. And it, anyway, great stuff telling the story. Since I said something that provocative, do you want to just give a very <laughs> quick explanation? Like, what, what are you talking about? Whoa, Nazis, what do you mean? Yeah, it, so it, it kind of tells the story, and I will I will warn people that my most popular YouTube videos are not logically my strongest arguments. Right. Which, <laughs> uh, so so there are obviously lots of things left left out of this video. It's about eight minutes long, and I think it's called something like "The American Way: Our Connection to Nazi Germany." Mm-hmm. And I I added that subtitle I think years after I originally published this video, but it parallels like a lot of what was happening in the United States around, I guess, 2010, 2011. So we're thinking about things like uh, the TSA, increased controls over the economy after the the 2008 financial crisis, uh, the expansion of the police state. And it's it's paralleling this to the rise of Nazism in Germany in, in the 30s. The video received so much criticism and hate that I wound up doing, I think, uh, like, seven or eight hours of podcast content expanding it. It was just called The American Way Expanded. Mm -hmm. So we talked about how, um, you know, Germany was very much a gasoline-soaked house. The causal relationships that we learn in in school about, you know, the story of Hitler, the rise of Nazism leading into World War II, like, according to what I remember from high school, World War II starts when Hitler invades Poland, right? Mm -hmm. That's chapter one of World War II scholarship in high school. Uh, so if you're lucky, so- they might say, oh, the Treaty of Versailles was harsh and they had reparations that were high. And then, you know, Hitler said, why are we paying this stuff or something like that? Right. Yeah. I, I think that in, I think you would learn that. The problem is it's just an, in an earlier chapter in your book, right? right? So even if it's mentioned again, you don't really see like the cause and effect of that. You don't see what happened in that that sort of 20-year period of finger quotes peace between the two wars. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot missing, obviously, from the way the story is taught in school. Uh, but one of the conclusions that I made was these were both societies, what, what we were seeing in the United States 10 years ago, and what we saw happening in Germany in the 30s into the 40s, were both highly schooled societies, right? That that had systems that taught this kind of obedience, that that taught this kind of, of conformity. And again, it goes to that, that Peterson idea of like, you think you wouldn't be a Nazi, a young American college student, if you had grown up in that situation, you were schooled to be that. Peterson doesn't say that, but I mean, I will will add that to Mm -hmm. his statement confidently. So it's a lot to cram into eight minutes. It obviously misses a lot, Mm -hmm. but I think uh, it's for people who are curious 
about the claims of that video. There's there's tons more content that that it shows Germany was obviously the, like we're talking about with the Treaty of of Versailles, a gasoline soaked house, mm-hmm. right? Hitler was a match that got thrown at it, right? You know, right. and and we all know basically what happened next. In that series, you know, we talk about um, some of the philosophical problems that container that Germany was in, Kant, Hegel, uh, and how how those ideas, even Nietzsche, how there could be a perversion or a twisting of those ideas to basically offer a, like a philosophical justification or support for the rise of somebody like Hitler mm-hmm. through through a misunderstanding of some of those philosophies. Not, not that those philosophies, I think, are perfect anyway, and just uh, were perverted into that. Uh, the economic problems, obviously, the costs that Germany had to pay after the First World War. And um, one of the things that I actually missed in that series was a lot of the cultural problems. You know, the Weimar Republic was having a, like, very America in, in the second decade of the 21st century kind of uh, cultural thing happening, Right in the 20s and the 30s, and there were a lot of people who had, you know, more traditional values in Germany who were really tired of that. And they felt like, look, this is a this is a, a first world country and, uh, you know, we're going to lose it to some kind of like socialist co- or some communist revolution. So the fact that like a right wing or somebody who positioned themselves as right wing in a lot of ways, strong man could rise to power from that. I think I missed that in in that video and in the series but um obviously i would say that the parallels have only continued to emerge between our two societies and uh leonard pykoff from the um you know the uh, objectivist world wrote a book like in the mid 80s called ominous parallels mm-hmm. right i what that i w- i would say like it, it was an easy thing to do after 911 and right. the fallout from 911 right. to 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 link those two worlds but you know Peacock does it 15 years before 9-11, uh, mm-hmm. just kind of tracing, I think, more of the, the philosophical similarities and, and the cross, uh, the, the collaboration between the United States and Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a lot of it, yeah. right? I mean, they, we, uh, America, took their school system. Germany took some of their uh, ideas about eugenics from, from American progressive um, higher education, you know, and just put them into practice, which is how they disappeared from America, you know, like once right. progressives saw them practiced, it was like, well, you know, maybe instead of like killing and sterilizing these people, we should try to be more like their parents or something, right, try a right. new approach, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the story. And, that, in and a that's nutshell. interesting too, that progression that, you know, you're saying Leonard Peikoff in the 80s, seeing like was documenting the philosophical similarities when to most observers, it would look like, no, we don't look like Nazi Germany. Whereas after, you know, during George W. Bush's administration, Plenty of people on the left were, had no problem calling him Hitler, yeah. And so, yeah. but but that that makes sense. Like for people who care about philosophy, or whatever, that's kind of the point. That yeah, before stuff happens on the ground, it's there was the previous generation of thinkers and philosophers who had dangerous ideas that were being batted around, you know, academia or whatever. And then the concrete, tangible fruits of that wouldn't show up until later. Right. Right. Yeah, or people could just find in them justifications for things that they wanted to do. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we, can we switch then to uh, the, your, your project, you alluded to it, this, this stuff like you're, you're having experts on the COVID-19 stuff kind of go head to head, or at least you're trying to facilitate that? 
Yeah, well, it's not like I'm uh, moderating debates between people. It's like we're trying to compare and contrast to uh, find a a more complete picture of what's going on. So Mm -hmm. a friend of mine who's uh, actually an Eastern medical practitioner, his name's Daryl Becker, he's been co-hosting this series with me. And I think one of the observations is a lot of like the social political response and a lot of what we see on social media to COVID has a real like wag the dog feel to it. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. Uh, so so the, the sort of behind the scenes of how s- these synthetic narratives can be produced and how perceptions can be managed. So I said, all right, well, there's certainly a lot of BS going on here. And some people will see like, oh, there's an attempt to, this is propaganda. This is um, an attempt at uh, some kind of manipulation. So the entire thing must be false. So that enter like um, somebody like David Icke, who will Mm. step forward and boldly say there is no coronavirus. There is no COVID-19. All right. That's that's a position. Uh, Does it go all the way to the end? Um, or where, where does the truth stop and the false begin? Right. So that was, that was an investigation that I wanted to take on. And I think, uh, at this point, when I realize how much you have to kind of zoom in and zoom out, right. To like big picture, to like really trying to understand the fine details behind like, uh, the, the RTQ PCR tests and, you know, is, is the virus uh, properly sequenced, is the genome of the virus sequenced, like all of these things, are, like the, to the broader, like what are the, the implications for all of society? It's just been an exhausting exercise. It's taken a lot of time. And I think that what I'm hoping to model is that people can disagree about this and not melt down. Mm-hmm. My co-host and I don't see eye to eye, but we've had at this point, I think like six or seven hours of conversation about it. And uh, more importantly is this this idea that I think I originally, I think Connor Boyack, you're familiar with yep. him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think he, he coined this term informa- or inquiry over information. A lot of people look at something as, as vast as the whole COVID-19 controversy and they just say, oh, I'll never understand it, so I'm going to submit to trusting uh, you know, in some cases, it's the World Health Organization and the CDC and CNN. And in some cases, it's David Icke. Maybe it's Tucker Carlson. But a person is going to have like, this is my go-to right. on this. Well, a person becomes a go-to in our media environment because they have a very clear, decisive, uncurious position <laughs> carved out about this thing, right? There's no curiosity about any of this on CNN, except like, how can we make it scarier? Mm-hmm. Um uh, obviously, Fox has their position. Obviously, the conspiracy world has their position. So people go to the comfort of of you know outsourcing their thinking to one of these positions. And I think just saying, look, I'm not I'm not invested in any conclusion. I know we have a need to make meaning, but like. Understanding this thing 100% accurately is probably, I don't have the capacity for that, right? I, I don't have the years to invest in, in doing the background science. So uh, what I am more interested in is the process of inquiry and speaking out from you know the platform that I have to say, I am inquiring. I think the world needs more. Not, <laughs> I know this is a little bit self-aggrandizing, but the world needs more people who are saying, hey, everyone, I'm inquiring. 
And that's what I'd like to like broadcast from my platform. Instead of saying, I have the information, I know the right answer. Because the truth is, most people are out there going, I'm never going to have the right information, so mm -hmm. I'm not going to actually inquire. Right. right. So, so to, to Connor Boyack's idea of not that he's wrapped up in this controversy in any way, I shouldn't have even, I, maybe I shouldn't have tied those two things together, but his, his gen, his very general idea of prioritize the process of inquiry over, you know, being sure that you gain the correct information and then even worse, marrying your identity or your worth to the information or the conclusion that it brings about. So I'm adding something to what he said because he was talking about it more in terms of self-directed education. But I think that is a, is a really important thing to engage in. We might not have the right answers. We might not get the complete picture. It's also extremely fluid and dynamic. So um, by the time, it, it's hard to catch up with it, right? There's always new information emerging about this thing. So just to kind of commit to a process of I'm trying to learn and my identity isn't tied to any conclusion or position mm -hmm. about this, I think is, is, is a worthwhile exercise. So, so that's, that's the project that we're working okay, on well, now. On yeah, I like that a lot. Um, so yeah, let me be a little bit more, uh, explicit, you know, cause I, especially if people follow my Twitter account or something, they can kind of tell from my trolling. So what my, I, I've decided what I am. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm anti, anti mask when it comes to this stuff. And what I mean by that is so with, with Trump, it's not that I'm pro-Trump, I'm anti-anti-Trump. And what happened was the attacks that I saw from people, this case from the progressive left on Trump, in many cases were so dumb that it started making me sympathize with him, even though I wasn't for him. And so with the mass stuff, like I've seen a lot of libertarians, and by the way, just, full, just so you understand the context, Brett, my wife has a serious lung issue. And so we were wearing N95 masks, you know, from the beginning, like back before, sure. back when the government was still telling us not to, right? So- so I've seen, just give you an example of what I mean. People will say stuff like, for so one thing is that lately, I don't know why but all of a sudden masks are a hot button issue again in the last two weeks, but they are for some reason, at least on my feed. And the, the Surgeon General had something from March saying, don't wear, don't buy masks. They're not needed for the general public. Reserve them for healthcare workers. And so, of course, understandably, libertarians right now who think this whole thing is a hoax or whatever is blown out of proportion are sharing that to show they lied to it. And, and my point is, yes, that's true, but look at what they said back then. They said, you don't need them public, save them for healthcare workers. So number one, that makes no sense. Why would they be good for healthcare workers if they're, if they're pointless? But also like when it comes to guns, the government also says, hey, you citizens don't need, you private people don't need guns. The police have right. them. So libertarians yeah, yeah. don't conclude, oh, I guess guns don't work. They say, I want to go get a gun because apparently, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? So that's weird that the people who think masks don't do anything. So, but that's kind of just rhetorical. I've seen people who simultaneously say Corona, the masks can't possibly help with coronavirus because look at the diameter of the coronavirus itself. Look at the porousness of the mask. You know, it, it fits through. So duh. And they say, and I don't want to wear these things because CO2 can't leave easily and I'll get a headache or I might collapse in the store. Well, I just quickly checked and the diameter of the coronavirus is 364 times that of a CO2 molecule. So mm -hmm. again, it's not whether that's right, but just internally, that doesn't make any sense. And then last thing I'll say is people have been touting this guy, Alex Berenson, is, oh, wow, he's speaking the truth. I don't know if they realize his other big book is called Tell Your Children. Oh, and by the way, just in case you don't know who he is or, or some listeners don't, he's like a COVID-19 truther 
or or okay. you know yeah, what I yeah. mean? Like he's on Twitter, he's real big on you know. Wait a minute, you told us that Georgia was gonna be dead by now, and it's not. And you know, so he's like the new hero. He's a former New York Times reporter of a lot of libertarians who you know don't like all this lockdown and stuff. And my point is, okay, you know, maybe he's right on this stuff, but this guy also is the author of a book called Tell Your Children, quote, The Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence, and I'm reading it from his website. An eye-opening report from an award-winning author and former New York Times reporter reveals the link between teenage marijuana use and mental illness in the hidden epidemic of violence caused by the drug. Facts the media have ignored as the United States rushes to legalize, right? That doesn't prove he's wrong about coronavirus, but I'm just saying it's weird to me how people who don't like the lockdowns, in which I don't, you know, in principle, you know, if, if, if an asteroid's coming, is going to destroy the earth and there's one rich, rich guy who has a laser to stop it and he doesn't want to use it, I don't think it's justified to force him to do it. You know what I mean? Like that, like that's what I'm saying, you know, I'm against violation of property rights. Doesn't matter what the consequences are. So of course I'm not for political lockdowns, but to me, there's a lot of liberty because they don't like that. They will latch on to anybody who comes along and says something, even if it's internally contradictory. And I, I'm just concerned that that makes it look like to non-libertarians who think that we're selfish and stupid and don't understand science. It's mm. like confirming all that stuff on some issue. Again, I know there's tons of stuff of people saying dumb things and the who is just ridiculous. Like they contradict themselves every week. So right. I, I get all that. But anyway, that's I'm done, done ranting. I just wanted to get that off my chest. So I like what you're doing. And I don't know if yeah. you- Yeah, can I add something to that? C certainly. Because I, I think back in April, we saw the- uh, the beginning of those anti-lockdown protests, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a very lively one in Michigan. They had one here in New Hampshire. And immediately, the mainstream media created these two positions, right? Like, So uh, immediately what, what happens is it's like, there is no middle, there is no discussion, there is no back and forth. There's these two extremes, pick. So these pictures started to emerge of these really kind of like sloppy and idiotic looking anti-lockdown protesters mm -hmm. with Trump hats hanging out of pickup trucks with poorly written signs, all of these clips that we saw over and over and over again. And I don't know what the questions reporters were asking, like as prompts to keep getting the same response, but it's like, I just want to get a haircut. I just want to need my hair done. You know? So it's like, well, you know, was Jamie here we are, America. <laughs> what you drinking on? <laughs> But, but but in CNN's in in CNN's presentation, it's like here we are, America. Choose: Are you with responsible science person? Are you with Neil right. deGrasse Tyson right. mm -hmm. and Greta Thunberg and and the World Health Organization, the CDC? Are are you with this Trump loving idiot hanging out of a pickup truck, which is obviously a false dichotomy? But mm -hmm. it was the one that was presented, and I think that a thoughtful libertarians. I don't want to say it's our our job, like we have a duty to do this, but a, a worthwhile project, I think, as yes, this this does uh, this is a controversy again, right? Since the a lot of the social justice stuff just died down because you know people get fatigued. If people aren't true revolutionaries, they get fatigued very easily. They always need something, but they can't stick with one thing for very right, long. Right. Um, and you know the media laser cat, uh, you know cat uh, laser in front of right, a cat right, 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 right. Uh, approach to like news cycles is obviously I think a huge part of that, and social media is too. But so now we're back to to the mass controversy and the the cynical response, uh, just as what I think might be happening. And again, this is tinged with my own cynicism from from observations is. Um, 
you know, Daniel Kahneman has that that book, uh, System One and System Two, yep. Thinking Fast and Slow. Yep. And so I think one thing that we've really seen in the last five years is people very uh, impulsively act. They decide, right? But those those decisions or actions are very emotionally driven. But because we're rational creatures, we know we can't go, oh, I just did it because I had this crazy moment or I lost control or I didn't know what I was doing. So mm -hmm. that's not a good explanation of why we do something. Certainly not ex a good explanation of who we vote for. So we have to backfill it with some rational sounding um you know, explanation of mm -hmm. why we did that. So mm -hmm. Kenneman kind of lays this out for people who are unfamiliar. There's system one, which is that sort of fast, like survival-oriented kind of thinking, not really processing everything and just making a snap decision that is very much emotionally driven. And one very powerful emotion is fear and shame or the, the desire to avoid shame is, is tied up in that as well. And system two is more of that deliberate approach to, you know, weighing evidence and, and making a more logical decision about something. So people act system one and then backfill system two. Mm -hmm. So I think things around masks seem to break out pretty well along political lines where a mask is an imposition. It's a big, masks are a big government program. And for the left, masks are science, right? right uh, and this right. is just like the most base kind of simple emotional thinking about it. I've seen doctors and nurses wear masks. Masks mm. are good. I'm on the side of science. Mm. So in very, very simple thinking terms, it's very easy for things to break out along those lines. And obviously, libertarians are going to line up more with the right on this one. Then people go and they backfill with, with whatever study they see. Mm -hmm. But so as the mass controversy reemerges, uh, I see a lot of like left-wing people on my my social media news feeds, posting this For Forbes article that's like, hey, masks are just what you do if you're a caring and responsible person, right? right? right. Mm -hmm. I'm just, this is just my way of showing that I'm a decent member of society, which is basically so much of what the signaling the left is it tries to right, do all right, the time. Right. So as a libertarian, I might say, okay, you know what? I'll, I'll concede that. And if I go out, like in practice, if I'm going into the the local like health food store where I know everybody's going to be wearing a mask, it's no imposition for me to put one on for five minutes, regardless of what I think. It doesn't even matter what right. I think. I think it's a courtesy mm -hmm. to do it. But this whole like so the the Forbes headline is you're a good person if you do this. So the the pattern interruption that we could create is like okay, I agree with you about the masks. What's your line in the sand? For that fill in the blank, what's your line in the sand? You're a good person if you blank. Because we're probably going to be playing that fill in the blank game in this country for a long time around this, around this COVID thing, especially if there is uh, you know, a really powerful second wave in the fall. You're a good, responsible uh, member of society if you blank. What? Stay locked in your house? Is that your line in the sand? Uh, subject your child to an untested vaccine? Is that your line in the sand? Uh, if you, uh, you know, stand by idly as the government completely destroys the economy by keeping all these business closed, well, like, where's your line in the sand? But know what it is, because mm -hmm. the fill in the blanks are going to keep, uh, you know, coming for, for some time, I think. Yes. And I think, by the way, just so you know, Brett, I'm venting, because what I just said to you there, I don't think I've ever said that all in one spot yet. Like I said, people yeah. who follow me on Twitter and see me troll people, other libertarians probably get a sense. <laughs> It seems like something's bothering Bob. What is it? <laughs> but so I just say I said that because I know you've got the facts where like you can, you know, respond the way I probably have to or 75% of my audience wanted to. So let me again, it was where I'm coming from though. And I agree that 
and that's why it's so infuriating. The stupid left, or not not the stupid left, the uh, petty dictator left. Yeah. So instantly, if something is good, why not just mandate it? Because they don't understand. Yeah. There's a lot, like the American spirit and whatever, like a lot of things, like that means now there's a bunch of people who on principle are not going to do it because they're like, screw you. You're telling me I have to. And it makes it difficult that I think in the absence of a political order, there would be plenty of businesses and perhaps not because they had experts who did the science, but just because the public was swayed by CNN or whatever, but just right. you know to avoid controversy, the easy thing would have just been to post a, a sign saying to come into this store, like no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no service. And then it would have been a property rights issue. Now, again, so without any political order, and then, you know, most libertarians, at least if they were to be consistent, would have to say, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a store, even though I think it's stupid if they want me to put a cloth around my face, I guess I have to because I believe in private property or that's what I've been saying for 10 years on Facebook. And right. so, in other words, the same people who say private businesses have the right to post a sign saying no Jewish people can shop here and the Civil Rights Act was stupid, they're right now going nuts about the horror of a store making me put a mask on. And the one right. thing they yeah. can they can link to, to to say, no, I'm not being as is, no, the government's making them. And I know no store owner in America would want me to put a mask on if it were really up to him or her. And I empirically, I don't know if that's true, but we don't know because the stupid progressives mandated it. So, mm -hmm. so there's that element of it. Um, so it's like, for example, with, you know, 9-11, there's a, a wide range of libertarian views on that. Like some people think, you know, oh yeah, government certainly overreacted. Some people go so far as to say it was an inside job. There's nobody who says 9-11 didn't happen. And I'm saying with the coronavirus, it's the weirdest <laughs> thing to me yeah. where the spectrum has been expanded to include, no, there's there's no one dying from this. That's all, you know, dying with COVID-19, not from it. And I've talked to people who literally believe this is nothing as opposed yeah. to it's been exaggerated like crazy. And of, so anyway, do you want to, I'm just venting at this point. I, uh, we need to vent. I, I think this is, uh, this, I'm glad that, uh, <laughs> we've provided a, a forum for that because I, I think I need it too. I was telling you before we started, I did a lot of it yesterday with, uh, with Steve Patterson, mm -hmm. who I know has been a guest on your show. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we just, uh, uh I, I think the exploration that's really important is, it's like, yeah, we understand just with the 9-11 example that there's lots of misinformation. There's lots of lies. There's lots of attempts at, uh, manipulation, right? But just because you have the presence of those things doesn't mean that there were no airplanes and the towers were knocked down by directed energy weapons from space. But <laughs> right. that is like a, a, a form of an argument that exists around it. Mm -hmm. And obviously COVID-19 is no different. So I think that the curious, as long as you don't get busted, like I talked about early, where <laughs> somebody says to me, you're not really curious. You already know what you right, think about right. everything, and you're just playing a, Socr a Socratic game here. But um, As if that's like, would they, would they have said that to Socrates? Like, <laughs> you, know, you think you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I um, in, in person, I mean, social media is one thing, and I'm trying to behave better there, but... Um, in person, I really think that, that that is a worthwhile approach and just asking questions. And questions are uh, always a really good uh, way to, if you care about people and you want them to do better and you want them to think harder, subjecting you know, their statements and their positions to questions is, is a great way to encourage that because they might realize they're not standing on much of a foundation. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think that is... Um, you know, a nice favor we can do for the people that we care about instead of just berating them. Like is that's what I used to do 
uh, in the old days. And, right. and like I said, burned a lot of bridges. And there was a lot of valuable information that could have been moved across those bridges when they were there. But I burned them, <laughs> uh-huh. right? Because that was that was like new libertarian system one, I know something you don't know kind of thinking. So uh, trying to do a better job than that today. Okay, well, I know uh, we could probably be talking for hours more on this, oh, yeah. but I know we both have time constraints here. So if, uh, my guest, folks, has been Brett Benoit, Benot, excuse me. <laughs> I told you before and I wasn't going to make your name French, and I just did. Uh, <laughs> folks, the, the links, I'll put all kinds of links, including to my Wheels on Liberty parody that I did at Porkfest one year. Did, I sent it to you, Brett. I don't know if you actually saw it. I sent it to you on Facebook and you didn't answer me, like years ago. I'm putting you on the spot. I'll go back and find it. I, I, I will go back and find it. This is the interview with the zombie? No, 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 not that one. It was the one where I was doing I was doing Wheels Off Liberty and I was doing you and Jamie. So my impression of Jamie was decent. You, I didn't even try. It was like the straight man. Oh, I, this is, I'm honored that such a thing exists. And also, Bob, <laughs> I have to be on the record before we leave here of apologizing <laughs> to you for whatever pork fest that is. It was 2012, right? Now, you say to me and Jamie, we're going to do this interview with a zombie thing. And I didn't know that this was like a, a, a major libertarian comedy phenomenon between you and Tom Woods. I didn't have that background information. Like, I didn't know yeah. that it was, it should, be, I should be honored to be interviewed by a zombie because this is like the, one of the most viral, in 2012, it was probably the most viral libertarian video in the world. So I'm just kind of sitting there like, and we're on stage. And I'm going, I don't get what this is. <laughs> right. So I had I known, I wish, because that's one of the, if I say, do you know who Tom Woods is? Do you know who Bob Murphy is? The first video I would show them is the bloopers from the interview with a zombie. <laughs> so I blew it. I blew it. But, but I just don't know so people we'll get, get what chance. was funny. You, you said, so, so again, folks, the setup, we're on stage and I'm the zombie interviewing you. And was Jamie there too? Yeah, Jamie was there. Yes, yeah. And because he, he said some dirty stuff that was fun. And and I'm conducting the interview, folks, as the and and Brett actually like says almost under his breath, like, you're just saying one word things. What do you, what do you want us to do up here? <laughs> and I was yeah. like, yeah, because I'm a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was good. This is good stuff. Okay, but in any event, well, this I'll, today I'll we made up for it today, Bob. This was great. I had a such a great time. The, the, yeah, thank you. And this was good. So at about I'll send it to you, Brett. The, yeah, I did a skit where I was doing you and, and Jamie, and it was, it was good. Oh, man, it was good stuff. It was awesome. It's too bad we got to save the world because we could just be such entertainers. We, we have so many gifts. <laughs> I agree. To, we have so much to give. Okay. Right. Uh, th- right. Thanks. Joking aside, thanks, Brett, for uh, being part of the show, and uh, good luck with everything you're doing. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.